there to Luke 18. Let me read uh, let me read verses 1 to 14. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's ask God for his help as we study his word. Father, thank you for those who have gathered here today. We do pray that you would help us to learn from this text. I offer you this sermon as an act of worship, and I pray you will be glorified in the teaching and preaching of its truth, and that you'll be glorified in our Uh, acting out its principles. We need your help to understand your word. We know uh, that we look at a world today that we uh, struggle with and and, uh, have discouragements, and we pray that this this scripture would be a blessing to us this morning, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You could look right at the beginning. I don't know how much time we'll have to get through everything today. We may cut this off at verse 8. We'll see because it picks up from our discussion last time on the coming of the kingdom. Jesus' instructions to the Pharisees were that the kingdom was not something that that they were expecting. Verses 20 and 21, and then to his disciples, he said that the coming of uh, the Son would be very similar to the coming uh, of judgment in the days of Noah in the days of Lot, and that one's own values would be exposed at that time just like Lot's wife, verse 32. And as he begins chapter 18, again, these chapters and divisions and headings are not part of the Bible. Uh, They're just ways that help us determine where breaks are, and sometimes they are actually unhelpful because I think the parable is closely connected to verse 37 and previous of 17, and we tend to think when we see that big 1-8 that now we're into a new subject, which we really aren't. Jesus is still talking to his disciples. You see in verse 1 it says he told them a parable to the effect that they, these them and they, these people must refer back to the disciples of verse 22. 
so that we see that the storyteller is Jesus, the audience is the disciples, and the parable is the parable of the judge who is stubborn. Or you could say it a different way, it's the parable of the widow who is a bother to that judge. And the purpose of that parable is given to us in verse number one, that the disciples would continue to pray and not grow weary. And I'm going to explain all what that means in just a second. But even though there are other passages that tell us to continue in prayer, this passage is, continual, is, is in the context of praying for something very specific. We don't want to take a general principle of the Bible which says as long as we keep asking God, He will answer our requests, because that's not what this specific passage is teaching. It's in the context of the coming of the Son of God. And it's in the context of believers who are crying out for something, and that something is repeated four times in the passage. It's really easy for us to understand what the prayer is about. Verse number 3, the woman kept coming to him and saying, give me justice. Verse number 5, this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. Verse number 7, will not God give justice to the elect? I tell you, verse number 8, he will give justice. doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out what is being asked for here. It is, were you listening? Justice. He's at, they're asking for justice, and God says he will give it. The judge gives it, the woman wants it, believers are crying for it, and God will give it. The whole context here is justice. The word justice is very important for us to understand. In this particular context, it means to avenge. Or to defend someone cause, defends someone's cause, or to prove me right against someone who is doing something wrong. In this case, it's the woman's adversary. We'll get into the parable in just a minute. Basically, the, the woman is praying and the elector crying out for this justice. Let the false accusations and the false behavior of our enemies be brought to nothing and avenge me. The better word might be vindicate me. Prove me, in a sense, to be right. Solve my problem. And in the context of the coming of the Son of God, the, 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 the evil of the days of Noah and the evil of the days of Lot is seen in our day too. And the coming of the Son of God has been delayed. And the cause of believers is... Uh, mocked at the very least by unbelievers and persecution rages against our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe who are crying out day and night for God to avenge them in the face of their enemies. God, why do you delay in coming so long? Come and bring this judgment of verse 37 where the buzzards are going to be picking the bones of the evildoers. Come and do that. And I'm going to keep bothering you until you do that, is the context of this parable. Okay, so begin with this whole lesson in mind. This is not a parable. There is a parable like that in the Bible, but this is not it, where the context is every one of our prayers, we should just keep bothering God because eventually he's going to relent and give in. We are specifically talking about the prayer for justice, the prayer for the vengeance, or not the vengeance, but the vindication, rather, of believers in the face of their adversaries. And that is the specific point of the parable, to keep praying for that and to not give up. 
be very easy to give up in the face of enemies and adversaries. I'm going to give you a few thoughts on that in just a minute. But put that thought away for now that the context of the parable is a prayer for justice. Jesus, the storyteller, audience followers of Christ, and the parable's purpose is to continue to pray for justice and don't give up in the face of the enemy. Everybody got that so far? A parable, of course, is the idea of laying two things next to each other for the purpose of comparing them. When you were kids, you probably heard that it was an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's kind of a trite way to say it. Jesus lays a story down of a judge and a woman, and then he's going to lay a truth down next to it and see how they compare. And again, it was given to believers. Parables were given to believers to hide truth from unbelievers. This is something that believers should see because the Spirit of God dwelling within us illustrates it to us. It opens our eyes to a heavenly reality. And this parable is given, the ESV says, to the effect or with reference to it being necessary. I told you last week, in fact, if you look in verse number um, 30 of chapter 17, uh, verse number 30 or 25, where it says, He must suffer. I told you that was a, a uh, translation of the Greek word dei, D-E-I, which is known as the divine necessity. It must happen. There is no getting around this. Well, that same, a different variation of that D-E-I is used in the phrase, they ought always to pray. It is necessary to the effect, like this is a divine must. Believers must continue to pray. Believers must not get weary in doing that. We are, this again, we've talked about this many, many times. There's, it's not continuous prayer that's being discussed here because we would be disobeying that command right now. It's consistent or persistent prayer that is being mentioned. In fact, the rabbis used to announce to the Jews that it was okay to pray three times a day because to do otherwise was tedious both to God and to themselves. So they mapped out these little times. Other religions have taken that same form. In ritualistic prayer at certain times of the day, that is not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a consistent, persistent prayer. Even when that prayer is met with discouragement and opposition. We're just overviewing the parable first, but verse 3 and 4 says there is an adversary. The judge is not listening to the woman. Verse uh, 4 tells us he refused for a while. There is a delay in the coming of the justice. That's also delay mentioned in verse number 7. You see that word, delay. Day and night they're crying out. This is a discouragement. It's a heavy opposition, this idea of justice. We need to respond as believers to this encouragement from our Lord to pray. And again, in the context, it is clearly that the believers have a desire to see the return of Christ all the way back to verse number 22. The days are co- of 17, the days are coming when you will desire to see the Son of Man. All believers have a genuine, sincere desire for Christ to return. Do you? Okay. When believers have that desire, any delay in that desire is a frustration. Especially as we see wickedness succeed. We become weary of that wickedness. We desire God to come. Don't give up. Keep praying for that vindication. Keep praying that he would come. Conquer your enemies. Vindicate our, righteous, uh, our righteousness and set yourself up on the throne. The prayer then here, no doubt, is God, your kingdom come. Prayer here is not a tidy little exercise. It is a spiritual battle that needs participants. 
who will consistently and persistently pray this, God, avenge us, vindicate us, come and glorify yourself. Give us the justice we desire, and that justice will be met when a righteous king takes over his creation. Are you praying that on a regular, persistent basis like the widow? If you're not, then you've missed the point of the parable. This is not, God, I want a boat. God, I want a vacation. God, grow our church. This is, God, give us justice. Come. End of Revelation. Behold, I am coming quickly. Even so, come, 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 Lord Jesus. So let's turn our attention to the, illustra- to the illustration of the parable that Jesus gives to point these things out. You have two major characters. You have a judge and a widow. The judge in verse 2 is described as a person who did not fear God and did not respect man. His opinion of himself was that no one is superior to me. I am accountable to no one. He acts completely based on his own self-interest. He is not concerned about rules. He is not concerned about laws. He is certainly not concerned about God. And he is not concerned about what others think of him. He is a completely corrupt judge. He is indifferent, at best, to God and to others. He felt as if his authority made him impervious to the assaults of others, even though, as in Exodus 22, verse 22, the Old Testament frequently discusses judges' responsibility as being one of taking care of widows and the poor. Exodus 22, 22 just simply says, you must not mistreat any widow. What would move this judge then? An appeal to some Old Testament law? He doesn't respect God. He doesn't fear God. Can the woman say, hey, Exodus tells us you got to take care of me? He wouldn't care about that. What about the feelings of others? What about compassion on this poor widow who most likely would have been widowed at a very young age? Remember that Jewish girls were married at 13, 14, 15 years old possible to be widowed at a very young age. I walked into a cemetery this week and saw a man who had died at age uh, 50, and I could figure out the dates that, that uh, this woman had died when she was, her husband had died when she was just 31 years old, and she lived to be 95, a widow for 60 years. Could very well be this very case. You would think a judge of this nature would be moved by compassion about this woman's situation, especially in these days when a woman was dependent upon a male family member, right? What social services were available? What WIC coupons so she could go get food at the market? It's a very difficult, tenuous situation, and the judge was not moved by that, either by the demands of God or the desires of others. He was selfish, hard, and cold. He would not be swayed by anything or anyone. The widow then comes to him asking for this justice against her adversary. There is no other clue to see what this adversary is. Some have speculated that it's a financial or a land problem, or an inheritance situation. We couldn't say that with any, uh, any uh, solid ground. It just simply says, and the Lord is making this story up, give me justice against my adversary. She is defenseless and vulnerable in whatever situation this is, without a man to help and assist her in that society, and without even a judge to look upon her with compassion. Yet she kept coming. That's what verse number 3 says. She is persistent. Will you deliver me from my enemies? Will you avenge me? This is a serious concern because she keeps coming to him. It's also equated to crying day and night later in the, in the passage. 
In some case, she has been wronged in some way, and she pleads with the judge who has the authority and the power to vindicate her, and he refuses. It's a very sad and difficult situation. I hope you're grasping it. Verse 4. For a while, it says, the judge refused. I think we have to ask ourselves, why? Of course, we remind ourselves of his character, but still, how heartless does this person have to be? There's nothing that the widow can do for him in response to his help. You would think even that the, the uh, feelings of the community around him would bother him, right? Like maybe the, maybe the community would say, come on, judge, whatever your name is. Help this woman out, but even that did not bother him because he doesn't regard God or others. The only thing that gets this judge to relent is what? Her, her bothering him. It is a nuisance to him. It is the widow's persistent badgering alone that wears him down. Think about this. Uh, a call to an Old Testament principle didn't cause him to respond. The, 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 the compassion he should share for a woman in need didn't move him. The thoughts of the community and others didn't move him. The only thing that moved him was, I want this woman to stop banging on my door. The phrases that are used for us in the passage are, uh, as we start to get, you know, Luke always, or very not always, but frequently does this, where we get a glimpse into the inner thoughts of the characters, and Jesus, of course, is telling the story, but for a while he refused, verse 4, but afterwards he said to himself, we go into the man's mind, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, repeated what was already said by the Lord, because this widow keeps bothering me. It's a word that means to trouble me or interrupting my life. I can imagine him sitting down to a meal and this woman finds him. Right? He's walking in the village. The woman finds him. I don't, this isn't like the law offices of Judea and Judea where she's going. I mean, she's probably going to his home. She's probably finding him society. And she continually interrupts his life. He's about to enjoy another unleavened bread and she comes and bothers him. I will give her justice, he says. This is continuing his inner monologue. So that she will not beat me down. That's a fantastic phrase. It's a boxing word. It, it is a word that comes from a term that is on the face, under the eye. And a boxing term, in, in, a, in, a, in another form of this word, it depicts a swollen face which has been made black and blue by blows. That's what the judge feels like this woman has done. One thing I read said, the judge was probably afraid that the woman would eventually physically assault him. I, that's not the case. This is a metaphoric, this is the way he felt, right? Imagine it being in a fight with a coworker or, or having a disagreement with a neighbor or something. I mean, sometimes you'll see this uh, played out in life and society. Man, I feel like a punching bag, right? They, they don't mean that the person has actually hit them in most cases, but that's the way the judge is feeling. I, I'm having blows metaphorically. This, this woman is leaving me bruised. I can't eat a meal in peace. I can't walk down the, sit, the street in peace. I can't do any of my work in peace. She's bothering at my home, and we were inferring all of this, but that's what that word means, bother, interrupts my life. And now he even states that she's leaving me bruised with her consistent bothering. 
So he basically grants the request because the woman is a nuisance and he wants to rid himself of this bacteria that is bothering him all the time. It is his frustration, not his fairness, that causes him to grant the woman what she asks. She's just, he's just frustrated with him, right? It is not his character, it is his convenience that causes him to stop this problem. Think about that for just a second, because the Lord's laying that next to something. So in order to understand the truth of heaven, we've got to understand really what this is all about. Think about what I just said. It is not his fairness, it is his frustration. It is not his character, it is his convenience that causes him to give this woman the justice that she has wanted. And that's the end of the parable. And then Jesus says, okay, let's listen now to what the judge says. What is the comparison that he's making? Well, there's two major characters in the parable. The judge and the widow. The judge represents God. The widow represents meaning us, be more specific with us, please. Uh, the elect, that's what the passage of believers are, the elect. And the justice we've already talked about is the prayer that Christ would come, like he did in the days of Noah, like he did in the days of Lot, and judge these unbelievers that the buzzards might swirl around them and Christ might be glorified. Jesus is making the argument here, then, from the lesser to the greater. Okay? He's not saying that God is like the judge who doesn't care about us and only answers our prayers because we bother him enough. Okay? That's not the comparison he's making. In fact, he, he states what comparison he's making with his, with his words. Verse 6. The Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice? What's the implication? Folks, what's the implication? If you were just reading this, he says, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God, parentheses, not in the text, but we think it and imply it, and will not God, who is righteous, right? That's the comparison. It's almost as if he left that out for us to, to see that because that's the clear comparison he's making. Hear what the unrighteous says. Do you think a righteous God is going to do better than an unrighteous judge? And the clear answer is, of course he is. Of course he is. If we can see that a man out of frustration and convenience answers a request, will not a righteous God, and I love the fact that it used the word his elect. He's chosen us. It's, a, it's another reference to the eternal love that he has shown us that before we were even in our embryonic stage, he set his love on us, Ephesians 1 said, and adopted us in Christ before we even knew life. Ephesians tells us it's before the foundation of the world. And so he brings that word in. Jesus' own word. Will not God, the righteous judge, give justice to his elect who are crying out all the time? If an immoral judge will finally do the right thing to quote the scripture, will not the judge of the earth do what is right? And again, the specific context, I want to remind you, is not necessarily related to all prayer but the context of the coming king who will bring vindication. Psalm 37, verse 28 states this, The Lord loves justice. 
He will not forsake His saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. When we say, verse 7, will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Hold off before we get to that next phrase. Will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Well, what thought does an honest Christian really have at this point? What thought does an honest, sincere, believing person think when they read that? Where is it? Where is this justice? Right? Because we have this great desire to see it come. I mean, I had Derek read uh, Psalm 35 for a specific purpose this morning. How long? How long, O Lord? Um, You see, do you not remember? We understand mentally and intellectually that with the Lord a thousand years is as a day and as a day is as a thousand years. But doesn't a real, I mean, I'm talking about a sincere, honest Christian who wrestles with these things, doesn't, doesn't that person say enough is enough? Come already. But maybe it's because we are really not praying that. We are really not asking that. We are really not seeking that. I'm not sure. The second phrase of verse 7 is even greater in difficulty to discern what it means. On the surface, it seems fairly easy. Will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? In fact, many commentators simply ignore this in their studies. They go right over it. I'm not sure why. The phrase actually should be translated, He is patient with them. So the verse could be read, Will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He not be patient with them? Or And He is patient with them. Patient with who? Patient with His elect? Patient with the unrighteous? What does this exactly mean? It's a very awkward phrasing, and so many interpretations are given, and maybe that's why some scholars just skip it. We can limit it to these options. One, God will eventually vindicate the righteous even if he is patient in his response, which 2,000 years, we'd say that's pretty patient. God will vindicate, number two, God will vindicate his elect because he is patient with them. Okay, sense the difference here. We want to get to the heart of what Christ means here. Number one, God will vindicate them. He's patient in his response. Number two, God will vindicate them because he is patient with them. Number three, God is patient about the complaints of the elect. They keep crying and God is patient with them. God God is patient with their cries. Fourth, does it mean God will not delay long? But can this view really be sustained after 2,000 years? And number five, God is patient as He restricts the enemy's abilities by protecting His elect. It's really difficult to know with certainty what Jesus is really saying about God's response here. Will He delay long over them? Is God really being patient with the wicked? 2 Peter 3.9 says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come in repentance. The Lord is long-suffering towards His promise, it says. That's in the context of His coming. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, but He's patient. And some have taken that to be the, the interpretation. Or is God simply patient with us 
kind of being crybabies, quote-unquote, God, please come back. I'm not saying it in a negative sense, but that he does use the phrase cry to him day and night. Is he patient with our cries? Hey, I hear you. I get you. How long will God let the elect suffer? The judge delays because of his indifference, whereas God delays in answering because of his patience. Perhaps it's best to just say this. God is not overlooking the cries of the elect. We know that from the passage. And though he may delay, he will come. He will bring justice and not completely put them off. I kind of feel like the translation is best to say it this way. Will he not, uh, will he not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he forget them forever? That's the way I look at it. I might be wrong. But uh, since a lot of people skip that, I figure it's a tough one and we'll know when we get to heaven. But the, but the key here is that we have a long-suffering, patient judge. Whether it's he's patient with us or patient with the wicked, we know that to be true from other portions of Scripture too. Or just patient in his response and coming. The pronouncement of verse 8 gives us that declarative statement that even though there is a delay, he will give justice to them speedily. There's two options for that. Does it mean that he will give them justice soon? Or does it mean he will give them justice suddenly? I tend to lean towards the second one, specifically because I look at Noah and Lot. That judgment came suddenly and forcefully. I think that's what it means there. He is delaying because if we said soon, I mean, we understand the principle of God's timing and a thousand years, etc., but for us, 2,000 years has been a long period of time, especially when you think about the context of God working. I mean, this has, been, this has been maybe the longest period of silence. Obviously, we have his written word, but the longest period of God's interaction with the world in the history of, of time. So to say soon doesn't make a lot of sense. Rather, to say suddenly he will bring that justice. Some of the verses that Derek read to us today, Psalm 35, 17, How long, O Lord, will you look on? Psalm 35, 22, You have seen, O Lord, do not be silent. And Psalm 35, 23, Awake and arouse yourself for my vindication. Look at what Jesus says here in verse 8. I tell you, that is the divine authority, justice will come. And justice will come, according to the end of verse 8, when? When justice will come when the Son of Man comes. That's when justice will fully and finally come. You can almost make that connection. He will give justice, circle, arrow down to when the Son of Man comes. That's when it's going to happen. Okay? I hope that's keeping your attention. Seems like it's making some of you giggle, but I think it's, I think it's a very good thought. So he concludes this teaching with a question, and this is the point of his teaching. Nevertheless, okay, I, I like that. Nevertheless, we don't say that a lot. You know, Jesus basically saying, okay, God is coming, God is patient, Son of Man is coming, justice will come, but nevertheless, it's almost like all that, yeah, it's almost like, yeah, 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 all that will happen, but when it does happen, is he going to find faith on earth? That's the point of the parable. The point of the parable is to line up this unrighteous judge with righteous God who will give the elect who are crying out for justice, justice. It's coming. And just like, nevertheless, like, put all that aside. When it does happen, what will the son find? 
Will he find faith? Will he find anyone waiting for him? Titus 2. Looking for the coming of our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Is there anybody left doing that? Noah, there was eight. Lot, there was four. Right? You know what I'm saying? There were eight saved with Noah. Four saved with Lot. Three, actually, right? Lot and the two daughters. I'm, I'm overstating it by one. Will it be like that when he comes? What type of faith does he seek? Greater than the final vindication is the preparedness of those who are waiting for it. Do we want to see evil and Satan put beneath the feet of Christ? Do we, yes or no? But greater than that desire is the preparedness for His coming. Jesus is basically saying, in the meantime, in this 2,000 years, will believers even keep the faith? Will they, persevere in, will they persevere in allegiance to Christ? Or will it be so bad that there won't even be anyone praying for that vindication? Now, it's already so late. So I'll just hustle through this and we'll, rather than bring it back next week, let's just hustle through verse 9 to 14. I'm not even really prepared to do that, but let's, let's do that. I think we can connect this because Jesus then turns to the text, the, uh, the Pharisees. It doesn't necessarily say the Pharisees, but he uses that in, a, in the parable. But he turns and talks to people, this is key, who are trusting him in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I can imagine that it's coming here in the Gospel of Luke because Jesus is saying, yeah, 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 I'm going to come. God will grant justice. Will there be anyone who finds faith on the earth? And you got a group of people saying, right here, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Will, he, will, he, will the... You can almost hear in Jesus' voice a sorrow or an anguish or certainly a concern, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And those people are going, hello, right? Hello, right here. But the key is that they were trusting in themselves. Isn't that the religion of the world today? I mean, this is the religion of society. It is trust yourselves. Find your righteousness in yourself. I'm a good person. And they put themselves on a higher plane than others. They treat others with contempt. I am godly. You are not. I am righteous. You are not. We're up here. You're down there. Jesus has a warning for those type of people who speak with such pride like that. By giving this parable, and it's very familiar, so it's probably okay that we rush through it. You got the two people going to the temple at time to pray. One a Pharisee, he's the one who's trusting in himself. The other a tax collector, a hated member of society. Look at the Pharisee's prayer. God, I thank you I'm not like other men. Folks, if that thought starts creeping in your mind, you're a Pharisee. Well, I'm glad I don't do those things. You know, I'm glad my children don't participate in those activities. Dress that way, listen to that music, go to those places. That's a dangerous pharisaical way to start acting and then like depending on our on our righteousness like we're doing this because we're so good and everyone else is so wrong and that's what the pharisee is saying 
even lists some things, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and he even, he even prays about the tax collector. He might even heard that, the tax collector. I'm not sure. And then he starts listing some of his religious things that he does. Right? I'm in Bible study. I'm, I'm a choir member, whatever. I fast twice a week and give tithes and all I get. I'm, I'm a religious duty keeper. I do what I'm supposed to do. God, I thank you that I do that. That's what he's saying. I thank you I'm not like these other wicked people, but I do what's right. The tax collector, completely opposite, stands far away, embarrassed, humbled, humiliated, recognizes his sinfulness, and would not even look to heaven. Beat his chest a sign of anguish. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is the type of faith that the Son of Man wants to find in the earth. The faith that admits their own sinfulness. The faith that falls upon the mercy of God. The faith that doesn't compare one's self to others, but compares one's self to God. Folks, it happens in the Christian community too. We start ranking where we're at spiritually. Ought not do that. Jesus gives that final warning. I tell you, this man, of course, he is referring to the humble tax collector. This man went justified. Justified means to be declared righteous. One thought he was righteous and wasn't. One knew he wasn't righteous, but was. That's the way everybody in the world is. Everybody in the world falls into one of those categories. They either think they're righteous, but they're not, or they know they're not righteous, and they are, but they are only because God has given them the righteousness of Christ. Folks, are you in that category where you know you're not righteous? You're overwhelmed by the guilt of your sin. You could care less what others do because they're in that same boat too. We're all sinners. You just are gripped by the guilt of your own sin and you cry out shamefully, mournfully, God, show me mercy. I need your mercy. Merciful God, oh, abounding in love, faithful through times I have failed you, helpless, selfish in thought and foolish in deed. I'm ungrateful, just announcing all those sins to God. When that person's heart attitude continues in that condition, they are justified. They've called upon God for forgiveness versus the other person who simply depends on everything, passage tells us, trusted in themselves, treating others with contempt. The reason they treat others with contempt is because they see them as not as good as me. That's a creepy, that church creep, that attitude creeps into church more than we like to admit. Jesus gives the final thought here, and I know we raced through it, but I think it was good. For everyone who exalts himself says, I'm good, that person will be humbled. That's an understatement. That person will be sent to eternal hell. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That is the type of faith. The title of the message, I never gave it, but what type of faith will the Son of Man find? Right? When, when, God, when Christ returns, will he find faith at all? And will he find the faith that the second parable indicates he needs? Let's make some applications and be done. Four brief applications. Okay, Number one, let us take comfort in the character of our righteous judge. Number one, let us take comfort in the character of our righteous 
judge. Could you imagine if the one that we desired to come and avenge us and vindicate us was a man of the immoral character of the judge in the parable? We have a God who does right, a God who is compassionate, a God who is kind, a God who has chosen us, a God who loves us, a God who has adopted us, a God who has forgiven us, a God who wants to shower us with all of the spiritual blessings in Christ. Let us take comfort in the character of God. Second, let us not give up praying for Christ's return. And I would say in all that comes along with it. Let us not give up, in, I could say, in persistent praying for Christ's return. And again, all that comes with it. His honor, His glory, the justice that He will bring, the punishment of evildoers. Third, let us remain faithful and believing. Let us remain faithful and believing with firm allegiance to Christ. That's, the, that's what he means by faith in verse 8. Faithfulness. Will he find people who are faithful, believing, being alle- showing allegiance to Christ in all things? Let us, know the, let us take comfort in the character of our righteous judge, not give up in this persistent praying for Christ's return and all that comes with it, the justice, His glory. Let us remain faithful, believing, with firm allegiance to Christ. And fourth, let us examine... Let us examine whether our faith is saving faith. That's 9 to 14. The idea of do we consider ourselves righteous or do we recognize ourselves to be completely unrighteous relying only on the mercy of Christ. And let this be a warning to us. If we exalt ourselves, we will be humbled. And if we humble ourselves, we be exalted. I pray that the Son of Man would return today. And I pray that he'd find me faithful. I'm the only one I can be responsible for. But I encourage us all to be that way. Father, we thank you so much today for this study in Luke. And we especially thank you for the promises we've uh, revealed. That you will bring justice. And we pray that it would come soon, suddenly upon us. That you would return and make things right. God, I confess I haven't prayed about that enough. I need to be more persistent in praying that you would come. And reign supreme over what you have made. Oh, how we desire that. Father, may we discern whether or not we're trusting in ourselves or whether we truly are recognizing ourselves to be the sinful creatures we are and and in need of your forgiveness and righteousness. If there be one in here today who is apart from Christ, we we pray that they would would begin to, to really be under the conviction of the Holy Spirit and to find their hope and peace in Jesus. We thank you, Father, for being with us here today and pray that we'll take these lessons with us in Christ's name. Amen.